0: This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. My guests today are Dr. Philip Higuera, Professor of Fire Ecology, and Kira Wolf, PhD candidate in Systems Ecology both at the University of Montana's
1: Franke College of Forestry and Conservation. While I've spent 20 years thinking about how ecosystems would respond to climate change, I have not thought about what that would feel like to witness. And that has been surprising and and a little bit jolting, for sure.
0: Phil and Kira and their colleague Brian Schumann recently published some alarming findings on what we're experiencing right now with wildfire. Titles of scientific papers are often word salads, Made even less digestible by gratuitous colons. In this case, however, their title speaks for itself Rocky Mountain subalpine forests now burning more than any time in recent millennia. That should get all of our attention. Phil, Kira, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. So let's start with you, Kira. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do?
2: I grew up in Western Massachusetts in a small town there. And my mom was an elementary school teacher, and my dad is a software engineer.
1: Very good. Phil, how about you? I grew up in the suburb outside of Detroit, Michigan. My mom was a nurse, and my dad was a physician. Yeah, not many subalpine forests there. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so, Phil, how did you get interested in, in forest ecology, what, you know, particularly from Michigan?
1: How, well, how did you get
0: into this area?
1: You know, I took an environmental science class as a sophomore in high school, and that really exposed me to this other world that I didn't see in in suburban Michigan, mm-hmm. and that kind of ignited uh, an interest in the outdoors and understanding how nature worked, really. And then at college, I got really interested in forest ecology, and in particular, how forests change over time. So that kind of was the start of my focus on understanding forest history and eventually fire history. Kira, tell us about your path to uh, you know, where you are today as a PhD candidate.
2: I guess my story is actually similar in, in that I didn't really become interested in the outdoors or ecology until college. Um, I moved from Massachusetts to Colorado. And that was a big change and really got me interested in understanding just how the landscape was different from where I'd grown up and kind of what were the, the driving processes there. And at the same time, I moved there in 2013, which was the year after a big fire had run right through the city, the Waldo Canyon fire. So fire was a big topic at the time.
0: Well, let's fast forward and talk about this paper that you're recently out with. I think it was published in mid-June. Is it
1: fair to say we're in unprecedented times? Is that a fair conclusion from from the the work? I think that's fair to say, and within the last two thousand years, probably more. You know that our study goes back two thousand years, just because that's when our records end. But that conclusion probably holds for uh, for a little bit longer as well. Okay. How did this project kind of come to be?
0: You know, these research questions you've been, or uh, you know, working on for a long time. It seems like it's a bit of a a culmination of a lot of questions, how did the project kind of come to
1: to fruition? The extraordinary fires last fall, fall of twenty twenty, you know, is what prompted us to investigate these records, put them together in a new way, and basically ask that question of is what we're seeing unprecedented in the past? And for most of my career when we look at the past, we it kind of in a comforting way we see that oh these things that are unusual on the human time scale they've happened before but this paper was different
0: you have this crazy fire season in 2020 it prompts this question like is this really unusual and it turns out that that it is like how do you reach that conclusion that hey this really is maybe uncharted territory
1: well we were able to were able to draw on a unique network of, of fire history records yeah. that happened to be in a core area of where there was a lot of extraordinary burning last summer and fall, mostly in Colorado, but also in southern Wyoming. And maybe take a moment, Phil, to just, what are you talking about when we talk about these records? Okay. So the the core piece of information, and pun intended, you'll see in a second. Right. Uh, right. So we use lake sediment records to reconstruct when fires occurred around lakes in the past.
0: So draw that out. How does
1: somebody look in the bottom of a lake
0: for evidence of fire activity? We
1: use lakes because when material falls on the surface of the lake, gets waterlogged, uh, sinks to the bottom of the lake, it gets incorporated into the sediment or the mud at the bottom of the lake. And because there's little to no oxygen down there, that material is really well preserved for thousands of years. Hmm. So, you know, we... We collect a sediment core, like, you know, st- sticking a big straw into the lake, putting your thumb over it, creating a seal, pulling it up. Sure. You get this core. And then... The kids do with their smoothies every day. Exactly, <laughs> right? And then in the lab, that is sliced up into really fine increments, half centimeter increments. And each one of those slices is this little snapshot of what was happening in the past. Everything that fell on the lake there, we can look at that. Uh, we can look at pollen to figure out what was growing around the lake. And we look at charcoal, and in particular these peaks in, in charcoal, to be able to reconstruct when wildfires burned around the lakes in the past.
0: And so how precise is a measure like that? I mean, you're making judgments about how 2020 compares to 2,000 years of history. Like how you know, what kind of error bars are there around observations from a thousand
1: years ago? Like, You know, how precise are these comparisons? What we don't do, we can't do, um, we can't say that 2020 by itself is uh, different than anything that's happened in the past. What we do with the with the lake sediment records is we look at 100-year chunks of time. And in that 100-year period, we can make an assessment of how often lakes burned, and we can basically translate that into this metric of fire rotation period. Okay. Which has different interpretations, but kind of the easiest one to, to think about is it represents the average amount of time in between any two fires at a particular point on the landscape. So if you're a tree and the system you live in has a fire rotation period of a hundred years, that means on average, you're going to experience a fire every 100 years. And so why is that
0: interesting? Like, how frequently fire is coming through a particular forest or area?
2: I wouldn't say it's necessarily good or bad, mm-hmm. but it tells us about basically what we call a fire regime. So that kind of describes sort of how like climate summarizes weather sure. over a long period of time. The fire regime summarizes fire over a long period of time in a particular vegetation type. Um, so like in these high elevations of alpine forests, Um, We think of these as infrequent, high-severity fire regimes. So we expect these to be pretty dense forests. There's a lot of fuels on the landscape, um, but it's usually pretty wet. And so it only dries out under rare climate events that allow that fuel to burn. And so that fire rotation period or that fire frequency tends to be on the order of like 100 years to several centuries. And so we can link that metric of fire frequency to changes in vegetation and climate Mm -hmm. to kind of understand how these ecosystems might shift over time and how they might respond to future warming. And so one of the interesting things from these records that we looked at in Colorado and and Wyoming is that there was uh, sort of a a warm period roughly a thousand-ish years ago where temperatures were about a half degree warmer than the 20th century average, um, over like a couple century period. And we can look back and see a peak in burning at that time. Mm. So among all of these different lake sediment records on the landscape, um, a large proportion of them burned during that warm period. So that lets us establish this link between fire and climate that we see really strongly today, Um, and see that that same link has been consistent in the past. um, And that allows us to interpret the increase in burning today as very likely linked to climate.
0: Okay. The level of warming we're seeing right now exceeds that period roughly 1,000 years ago, right?
2: Yes, it does.
1: Yeah, we're we're approaching, we're about 1.2 or 1.3 degrees C above the 20th century average now.
0: I think we kind of get it intuitively, but explain why warmer temperatures equates to more fires.
2: Fire is a lot more likely to ignite and to spread uh, when fuels are dry.
0: So the plants, the trees, both dead and alive, they're just more dried out. I mean, you can tell it here. It's been, what, over 90 degrees and some days over 100 for the last 10 days. Everything feels like kindling. Is that kind of the effect you're talking about, accumulated over many years?
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, not accumulated over many years, but accumulated over a single growing season, Mm -hmm. basically. And mostly we're talking about dead fuels. So, like, litter on the ground, dead branches and logs, and, like, grasses that have grown and then dried out later Mm -hmm. in the season all carry that fire spread through a forest. And once it ignites and spreads, then it can burn live vegetation, but we think about this like fuel aridity metric as something that accumulates with hot temperatures and lack of precipitation um, basically over the spring and summer. And then that can be exacerbated by super high temperatures and winds while a fire is burning that really facilitates that um, like rapid spread and, and intense fire. But a lot of it is that fuel aridity
0: okay. question. Yeah. And, and so, you know, Phil, back to your kind of perspective on this as, you know, drawn across a long career in this type of science, you know, to say that you were maybe surprised by the findings or, you know, I just want to kind of get in your head and in your, your emotion of what you were experiencing when you study this stuff. I mean, for you, climate change is no secret, but you have to have some emotion about it as a human being on this earth. Like what are you thinking yeah. as you're looking at these data and, and trying to put together what it means?
1: Well I twenty twenty was a was a different year for for everybody. Yeah <laughs> for a lot of reasons. And for me the twenty twenty fire season was was definitely different, uh, in terms of my experience. You know, you asked, were we surprised by these results? On the one hand, the scientist in me was was not surprised by the, by the results sure. because we've been writing this for decades and there are dozens of papers that, that make this prediction. Mm-hmm. There are some, some nuances, you know, that it, it's, it's happening maybe a little bit earlier than we thought, but, you know, big picture science-wise, it's not surprising. But clearly, as a citizen of the West, watching friends and family last year in Oregon, Washington, and Boulder endure days of hazardous smoke from wildfires, you know, potentially being evacuated because of wildfires and just watching the ex- extraordinary growth of these events. That struck me and and what I've realized is that while I've spent 20 years thinking about how ecosystems would respond to climate change and how fire regimes would respond to climate change, I have not thought about what that would feel like to witness. And that's what 2020 showed. That was part of that experience. Is that this is what it feels like to witness this, and that has been surprising and and a little bit jolting for sure. We'll be back to our conversation with Kira Wolf and Phil
0: Higera after this short break. A new angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success.
1: Hi, this is Sheila Stearns, Commissioner Emerita of the Montana University System and former President of the University of Montana. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, A New Angle.
0: Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with fire scientists Kira Wolf and Phil Higuera, about the unprecedented levels of burning we're seeing in the Rocky Mountains. So what do we do about all this? How are you thinking about it in terms of not only the scientific questions you're interested in, but but how do you kind of recommend others digest the information and act on it?
2: Gosh, that's the million-dollar question, (laughs) right? Like, this is not an easy question to address. And I think what this this really highlights for me is that, like, we— are, have to expect more fire. There's no way to avoid it. Mm-hmm. There are ways to protect our communities through fuel management and fire suppression in in specific areas around where people live. But especially in these high elevation forests, um, it's really hard to prevent these wildfires through any fuel manipulations just because there's so much fuel. It dr- grows so quickly, and these are such remote areas. And so... We have to expect more fires, and the question is then: How do we live with that? We have to be able to kind of rethink the way that we structure our communities and our homes to be able to to deal with that, to mm. to lower that risk. There's so many different ways that we ha- we have to address this. There's really no panacea here. There,
0: there are multiple types of fire, obviously, but like the, the fire you studied in this paper, as you said, high elevation fire, often very wilderness-oriented, far away from, not necessarily, but but often far away from communities, yet fire in the wildland-urban interface is an adjacent issue. I mean, maybe talk about that piece of it. These fires are a little bit different in how they play out in terms of how they inter- interface with human activity.
1: I mean, we're talking about high-elevation forests, but there are a lot of communities that live in, inter- in you know, embedded in high-elevation forests. Okay. Here, the Lolo Peak Fire in 2017, right, that started in wilderness up in, in high elevation forest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these events, they, they cross boundaries, right? But back to your, to your original question of, like, what does this mean? First and foremost, this really points out that if we want to seriously address, like, being able to live with wildfire and we want to do something to, to curb its impact on, on human livelihoods, we have to take seriously addressing human-caused climate change, you know, because overarching all of the different ecosystems uh, across the West and across the world, a warming climate is making all vegetation basically more susceptible to burning. So there's nuance in there, but basically warming the climate is just, it's loading the dice. Sure. So that's, that's one. Another point that, that we've been emphasizing from this work is just, really the importance of understanding that what we've done in the last couple decades is we should not expect that to work now or in upcoming decades. So this point of, of entering uncharted territory, it has a lot of implications, you know, both from planning um, a fire-safe community or planning evacuation routes all the way down to what we do on the 4th of July. But increasingly, and 2021 is a great example, you know, the 4th of July is going to be more more like what we're used to seeing in late August. Um, so the patterns that we've developed, the systems that we've developed, our infrastructure, it's, it is based on conditions that we are increasingly moving away from, and wildfire is part of that.
0: Yeah, you're speaking a lot of the social science aspects that uh, are as or more difficult in some ways to understand how people are going to change. Kara, I want to give you the chance to kind of... I want to ask you about your dissertation work. You're looking at some interesting questions that are a little bit more forward-looking. Um, tell us about it.
2: Well, so there are sort of like two big avenues that I'm I'm working on in my dissertation. One of them is is kind of really an extension of, of this work in this paper that we were talking about, but looking more specifically at the Northern Rockies. Okay. Um, so in this region... Uh, what do we see in terms of past fire activity and responses to climate? And what does that tell us about what we can expect with climate change? And then sort of the other avenue of my dissertation work that I'm writing up right now, <laughs> working <laughs> on that, is is looking at post-fire regeneration on the contemporary landscape. So sort of another big question in terms of With climate warming and increased fire activity, not only what do we expect for people, but what do we expect for our forests? And one piece of that is how trees are able to respond both to increased disturbance and warmer and drier climate conditions on the landscape. And so trying to really get at the, uh, what are those mechanisms by which forests are going to change as conditions get warmer and drier and we see more fire.
0: You know, if, if climate change is accelerating in some ways, like what what comes back might not be what was there before because, the, you know, the, the, the earth has really shifted underneath the forest in a way, metaphorically.
2: Yeah, yeah. And there may be some areas where we would expect even, like, declines in forest cover. <sighs> if there are no species present that can yeah. handle the climate in that place.
0: So, Phil, I know you're probably a big part of this work. What, what are some of the big questions you're looking at going forward, both in terms of what you're looking for this fire season, but also as a scientist, what, what kind of research questions you're thinking about?
1: There's still a lot we can learn mm-hmm. from, from understanding how ecosystems have responded to fires in the past. What we've been talking about is mostly this link between climate and fire. We know that our forest ecosystems have had varying responses to, to changing fire activity in the past. So a lot of our work is is focused on, on understanding that. And in particular, some of the most interesting questions are whether there are these feedbacks between increased fire activity, changes in vegetation. So for example, reduced fuel availability that could potentially decrease the likelihood of future fire activity. So when do those feedbacks kick in are there scenarios where those feedbacks are exceeded? That's a really important uh, line of research that we need to understand in order to better anticipate what we expect to see across the West this century. And then you know this the social questions, you know, you know I collaborate with yep. Libby Metcalf and Alex Metcalf and others um, and I'm increasingly interested in in understanding how humans, Respond to this aspect of environmental change. Um, certainly, the last several years has put this in our face. Um, so, increasingly interested in trying to use what we know about how fire works, from the biophysical perspective, to help us. I mean, ultimately reduce the amount of human suffering that that is happening as our ecosystems and wildfire regimes change as our as our planet warms. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Anything else you want us to understand about this work, Phil? The important context for this work is that that it applies to these high elevation forests. And so, well, in our paper, we emphasize the role that climate is playing in enabling these forests to burn as much as they have in the 21st century. You know, we know that there are other important components driving the way that fires impacting humans, you know, in 2020, 2021 in the last several decades. So, there are really important changes in human impacts on on fire regimes. At lower elevations, the, the story is different, if possibly more complicated in terms of the, the role that past management and fire suppression has had. So when thinking about fire in the West, we can't take any one study or one e- any one ecosystem as the story. So that's something that i that i like to remind people of.
0: Indeed. So. Yeah, the broad perspective and the long game are things to important things to think about. You know, we mentioned the frequency of burns, the burn cycle in an ecosystem. I mean, what do you what when you when you see the fires are occurring more frequently and i, I think in the paper it was like during this period they were occurring almost with twice the frequency as
1: as, pre, as they previously were. What does that tell you about what's happening? A key statistic from the paper is in the past, over the past 2,000 years, these forests burned on average, you know, at any point, the the tree would experience, a tree would experience a fire on average once every 230 years. Mm -hmm. And over the past 20 years, the 21st century, that number has, has almost been cut in half to about, I think it's 116 years, which means that a tree is experiencing fire twice as often. And what that means from the perspective of, of the organisms is some trees that you know maybe they w- they don't reproduce until a certain age they're experiencing fire at younger and younger ages so that helps dictate what what trees and other plants will be there on site to be able to regenerate afterwards so that average timing between fires in a way it sets up what plants and animals can exist in an ecosystem okay and different frequencies of fire will favor different sets of, of species. So broadly, as, as fire frequencies change, we expect uh, the, the suite of, of plants and animals to change
0: with that. Sure, so the ecosystem sort of adapted, the type of vegetation and the mix is adapted to the frequency of fire, change that frequency of fire, we're gonna get different things.
1: Yeah. I mean, in essence, there are different winners and losers yeah. for for any fire regime. So as the fire regime changes, some species are going to have traits that make them better able to exist with that frequency of fire, and the ones that don't are, are going to decrease in frequency. Okay. Makes so that, sense. that's one part.
2: Another part of it is we think of forests as being really important for certain things like carbon storage on the landscape. Mm-hmm. And what Fire and disturbance in general do is they release a lot of that, both carbon and other nutrient elements like nitrogen um, from the ecosystem by burning up vegetation and just um, kind of making the system a little bit leaky before kind of the new vegetation comes back and regrows. That process can actually actually potentially create a feedback with climate change, where if you have a lot of fire on the landscape and increased frequency, if the ecosystem isn't able to recover that carbon and that nitrogen in between successive fire events, you can have a long-term decline in that storage on the landscape. And that then releases more carbon back to the atmosphere, which accelerates climate change. And so that's one, one concern with increased fire frequency.
0: Gosh, yeah. so a lot of effects. Here. That's
1: that, that's, <laughs> a, that's actually a good answer to the what's next. Like with, we have one of our collaborators is an, an ecosystem modeller, uh-huh. which um, part of a large part of the focus on of ecosystem modellers is understanding the carbon cycle. Where where is the carbon? How does carbon storage change? As these systems burn twice as often as they did in the past, we would expect to see this pulse of carbon going into the into the ecosystem whether it's the atmosphere or out through streams but we'd expect the carbon cycle to be impacted as fire regimes change.
0: When you're talking about uncharted territory with the current level of fire and you're trying to make these projections about the future, I mean it's it has to be disconcerting because if we're in unprecedented times you don't really you could be making predictions that of things we've never seen before and that might feel like you're putting yourself out there. Yeah. You're sort of outside the guardrails of what we've observed before.
1: I mean, in a way, you know, we're running this natural experiment with yeah. global warming Yeah. and with each year that, that passes scientists, you know, we're testing our understanding of the system and we're getting results every year. And more often than not, we're, they're consistent with what we, what we were expecting even though it is surprising to to see it unfold. Yeah. An additional important difference between the forests that we studied at high elevation versus lower elevation forests across the west, you know, we highlight that these forests are now burning more than they have in the past. In lower elevation forests that historically burn more frequently, you know, once every few years to several decades, those are the forests where because of fire suppression, a lack of indigenous fire use and other land use changes those lower elevation forests are not burning as much as they have in the past. So certainly part of the complexity of, of talking about fire and as a citizen trying to make sense of this all, you know, some areas are burning more than they ever have. Other areas are not burning enough. That's That can be a confusing message. But basically, the reason that is, is because these lower elevation forests, they burn more frequently in the past. And they've kind of felt a bigger brunt of the impact of fire suppression and other policy changes. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Phil, Kara, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for this work
0: and uh, for translating it to the public. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for your interest, Justin. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. A.J. Williams is our producer. BTO Jeff Amet and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot and see you next time.